listeners, and welcome to another episode of Compare and Campaign. I am your host, as always, Tom Lando, and with me, as always, is my co-host and co-DM, Miguel. Oh, I said DM this time, even though it's still GM. Slide into my DMs. (laughs) Ah, I I slid back into the old DMs. That's right. It is episode 126 on uh, the 19th of October, 2022. Uh, Anything special to say about that, McGill? Uh, no. It's a Wednesday. All right. Uh, oh, yeah, I'm supposed to get a COVID booster later today. Oh, that's and, exciting. Yeah. Uh, How many have you had exciting? now? About, about 50, 51? Yeah, definitely. I'm, hit, I'm, I'm reaching COVID 51. Um, I'm like, not, at this point, I think I am 90% COVID vaccine. I mean, more, more, than, more in your body than water, you think? Or the water has turned to COVID vaccine? It's something like that. You're moist with COVID vaccine, Miguel. <laughs> I'm, I'm damp with it, Tom. Uh, so I watched this movie, Boxer's Omen, hey. come up previously. I checked it out. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's pretty fantastic. I definitely uh, recommend it to our listeners. It um, really redefined my idea of what evil magical rituals are like. Um, I did want to say something that didn't get into your uh description of the film it is it's at times it's quite horny yeah um i i i my theory is that the filmmaker if i could boil down their character to a single conflict it would be he loves buddhism but he really loves boobs as well (laughs) it's a a classic booty or buddha conundrum yeah he um uh yeah there's a there's a scene where the director clearly thought that the best visual that he could go for was literally boobs on a screen door yeah on a sliding glass door door. in the in the rain yeah um (laughs) and then there's a scene where they go to nepal and uh we're seeing like they do a long montage of just like hey our crew got to mess around in nepal and here's all our footage but, um, like, it ends with just a close-up of every, like, depiction of fornication in the little uh, engravings and whatnot around the temple that they're at, uh, which seemed like it, it's so uh, deliberate. It's like, it's like, oh, and here's a sequence of, like, little drawings of people doing it, and that's what we're going to end on. Um <laughs> but you know, I theorize that this is like you know, it's not without meaning. Um, you know, I I hold to the idea that this guy just he really loves Buddhism, but he really loves boobs as well, and he has trouble between them. But uh, within the narrative of a film, which I will say, not necessarily a satisfying narrative, but certainly a film where a lot of things happen. Uh. But the the thing is that um, he, there there is this theme 
of like as uh within buddhism denying the temptation of pleasure and sex and and there's abstinence and stuff and um there's even a part where there's kind of uh there like near the end there's kind of a final boss that is kind of like witchblade like she's just barely dressed um with like a sort of tiny tiny shiny micro bikini getup that is like just barely covering her parts um i forgot all funny, about witchblade what's funny to me is that uh she ends up like in conflict with like some kind of summon spirit it seems uh my theory it wasn't entirely clear and maybe it would be if i were more familiar with the culture but um she ends up in conflict with a spirit that appears that i theorize to be the like llama that the temple is dedicated to but for all I know, it could be just a depiction of the Buddha that I'm not familiar with. But the point is that this guy comes down uh, with all these uh, peacock feathers and he's <laughs> he's ringing bells and stuff. And, and it's it's very kind of strange because we've gone from like what was a more physical conflict to just this crazy witch blade confronted by this old man ringing these bells but then as he <laughs> ring these bells she just kind of like goes around cackling and doing a sexy dance at him and that seemed like very uh that also felt very deliberate in a sense of like ooh, you're buddhist you don't you don't like to have a sexy dance Ooh, what if i do a sexy dance right in your face what then and uh it really seems to frustrate her that he just continues uh ringing the bell <laughs> uh, and that seems to be like an encapsulation of a cosmic battle the movie is indescribable that's the thing it's one of those those movies where if you try to describe a scene like you just did like you just wind up sounding kind of nuts <laughs> i'll say this even with the pretty uh extensive description like you told me a bunch of things that were in the movie and stuff you told me all of that and i still could have had there there was no way for me to tell you in the first 15 minutes of the film where that film was going to end up <laughs> because it appears to be a completely different film from what it is uh, for the beginning. There's some weird ghost stuff, but apart from that, like, I was genuinely beginning to wonder, like, is this the right movie? Like, McGill said there were wizards and stuff in this. <laughs> it's the right movie. There's just, yeah, it's... um. And it should be said, uh, it's it's also got some, like, there are some parts I like uh, in it that are almost, like, Suspiria-esque. There are some cool little abstract effects. There's one um, where it goes into sort of, like, a, a binocular frame, um, but then it seems to be just on a close-up of, an like, a... a visual effect that looks like just a pile of worms squirming on itself but it looks more like a, a weird uh visual distortion effect or something that they used to make that appearance but whatever it is it works really well to convey this weird abstract thing of your vision being filled with like just a nightmarish evil wizard curse <laughs> anyways that's that's my 
that's what I'll add to the statement on Boxer's Omen, uh, which now we've covered twice on the show. I'm any, glad... Did you have any more addendums or anything? Yeah, I'm, I'm just glad that it lived up to the hype, you know? Like, I, I was hyping up Mad God as a movie I thought you'd like, and you were sort of lukewarm to, like, you didn't really like it because it didn't really make you feel good. It's all kind of grim and, and awful. Uh, so I'm glad... My recommendation for Boxer's Omen went over well. Hey, uh, on that note, I just want to shout out, have you seen this game Scorn? Uh, you know what? I was I was actually going to mention it because I've got it. I bought it. I have it installed, but I haven't started it yet. Just last night, I finished uh, the last of the three Dark Pictures anthology games that I've been playing. The the ones by Supermassive Games, the, the people who did Until Dawn. Um, so I've played the three that are out now and, uh, the last one I played, even though it's the second one is little hope. And I thought it was the worst of the three, but I finished it last night. So now I'm ready for scorn, but I haven't played it yet. I was just going to say, like I'll play it tonight. I I've mostly been seeing, uh, the, it's pretty hysterical watching streamers play scorn because it's so it's like it just constantly confronts you with stuff that's like oh my god really really and like so especially for like fairly mainstream streamers like you know twitch has guidelines and stuff uh they're kind of like astonished at what they're seeing in the context of like this curated space of what you can stream on twitch i think um oh so it's so it's that gross interesting Oh man, I uh, like I, I've I've I haven't watching... seen any gameplay. I watched the trailers and then I was like, I'll just wait and play the game. So I haven't actually seen the gameplay outside of the trailers. I don't know how disgusting it's going to get. I've been, I've been watching Germa and it's phenomenal watching him because he is just baffled by everything. Um, there is a point where he is walking across this grand, uh, like structure. And there's a statue that he's walking by that has just an enormous phallic protrusion. And he stops before he gets to it and looks at it and says, come on, dude. Like, really? And then he walks over and stops right next to it, turns and looks at it and looks up. So it's like towering over him. And he's like, that's just like, come on. And then he goes back to walking away and then turns back to look at it again from a distance and says, like, seriously, like, unbelievable. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And like, yeah. uh, But what I wanted to say is like, like, so there are things that it's funny because also uh, it reminds me like I, I think before. Or when it was in development, I would get it confused with a game that had already come out and that I had followed a bit called Agony. Are you familiar with that one? No, you know, maybe I don't think so. I can't think of it offhand, but it has one of those titles where it seems familiar, perhaps even if I haven't even encountered it. So Agony was going for a very similar sort of like gross, uh, atmospheric horror like surreal horror landscape sort of thing um it was a maybe a bit less uh giger-esque um but like it was a lot more like like 
gory looking like every like if scorn the palette is like generally gray and black then agony went full like blood red for its like aesthetic and like fire and stuff and it was very like hellish and stuff and it's funny because uh i scorn has like grabbed me in a way that that game didn't and i was kind of going back and looking at agony and sort of wondering why because i do think of them as fairly similar games in the way you play them they almost they also kind of remind me of like alien isolation in the way they're almost like walking simulators punctuated by like moments of um you know tension or uh puzzle you know the engagements are not these protracted first person shooter engagements they're like you do something quick that like and then you try to get out of the situation or something like that and um agony though is way more i think like abrasive and in your face uh i watching clips of it it's like people never shut up in that game you're always hearing a cultist somewhere yelling something about the horror of babylon um there's like crazy boss fights with like uh I don't know. They they they're very like it like with crazy it's a, it's very like it's like it's like metal blood satan hell blah like like it's almost like it, it's like a a more meditative version of painkiller or something. Um but scorn there's something about the way that it is paced slowly again it reminds me of alien isolation the way it puts you in its weird um playscape is like it reminds me of mad god but i like it better than mad god because it puts me in that place and sort of gives me a sense of like agency and like like i guess um, I guess I'll just vaguely say there is a point in Scorn where there is like this sort of uh, almost like a mad god poop it, just like a, a, <laughs> almost like a weird zombie thing. He's all messed up looking and he can like barely walk, but you need his help. Uh, and it's all like dialogueless. You're just sort of tugging him along and he moves very slowly behind you and then every once in a while he stumbles and falls over and you have to go and like do a prompt to like help him back up at which point he begins stumbling towards the place you need him again and that like it it seeing that i was like oh this guy i like this guy i like it put me in that world in a way that like in scorn it's or even in isolate alien isolation i'm kind of just like oh god i just want to get away from this i just want to get to the next thing and in scorn i'm just like i'm kind of just living here it's it's funny (laughs) (laughs) interesting interesting maybe if i lived in mad god world i'd have a different outlook because i'd have more of a sense of of what it's like you know what what it's what it's really like to you know it's it's really it applies to what i've been covering in in the podcast with living in seeing what life is like in citra arha but you know know these weirdos you know now that you say it though uh that's like that's why i recommended it to you is 
the world of Mad God reminds me of the kinds of like hellscape places that you imagine. Thought you'd appreciate like it, Mad God is kind of like the tourist Citra Arha, isn't it? Like it's just you know those guys going through this sort of hellish, weird industrial landscape, and he's seeing all these strange things as he makes his way through. Yeah, it's the thing is that like there's no I guess the thing is that there's no exposition or dialogue in Mad God and like that I'm sure that works for some people but like I like exposition and dialogue. Yeah, for, but there's no exposition or dialogue in Scorn, right? Uh yeah, I think that's fair to say. Um so I guess I I'm know. just very curious where the line is drawn. Where is the line drawn? That like when you say that about Scorn, it's true. It's it's something interesting about like the way Scorn. It's like I guess with Mad God, it's because in the third person, I'm like I I'm not uh, driven to engage or interpret in the same way that I am if I am put in that situation long term the way that Scorn seems to like Scorn you are really just spending so much time immersed in that world and literally like walking through it and trying to solve the puzzles and things that like your interpretation has to be fairly literal in order to progress through the game. Whereas in Mad God, you're kind of just watching it and seeing it and the interpretation is up to you. And I think that's very much the point, but um, I would prefer either through exposition and dialogue or through a long-term residency in this nightmare landscape to to have that sense of like um i don't know it's uh what what would the word for that be i also want to say reality tangibility measurability the the ability to like um the ability to say no i know what that means because i've had to figure it out in order to pro- progress to the next level rather than I think I know what that means, but that's just my interpretation. Uh, do you want? Hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, uh, it's it it's self and in the case, self apparent. And in the case of dialogue or exposition, I know what it means because I've been told what it means. Yeah, yeah. Which I know, it's... like a lot of people are not fond of, and I think in some cases it's definitely better not to tell the audience what a thing means. But if a thing is completely without that sense of narrative or, or exposition, um, that that was something that was lacking from Mad God for me that I think if it was there, like if I had been really invested in sort of like the the quest of those mysterious masked men or like felt that there was like a plot that was being followed, that might have that might have, you know, pushed me more in favor, which like again just says stuff about what kind of narrative i like you know i like a i like a dumb overwritten narrative i like inception <laughs> also i just want to shout out that at one point germa so, is confronted by something he finds so horrifying that he's like dude come on and he pauses the game and like then when he unpauses the game the austin powers theme is playing 
What? And so he's doing this horrific sequence while it's like, and it's it's phenomenal. <laughs> like he just needs something to help calm his nerves while he yeah to just like take him out of it. He needs an extra level of uh, of separation. Um, well, I look forward to it. I, Are you going to play Scorn? Or are you just going to watch people play it instead? I will probably play it, but like a long time down the road. You know, it it took me. I feel like I ended up playing Alien Isolation like a decade after it came out. Like, like I'm I, I played it pretty playing, late too. I'm planning on playing GTA Five. Like, I still haven't played GTA Five like the single player, or really at all. I have it. I've I've got it, and um, it is approaching. It's like ten years or whatever, and. I am only just like planning to approach playing it. But then at the same time, I'm planning to approach playing XCOM 2, but also I've gotten kind of held up halfway through Pathfinder Kingmaker, which I have two saves in, one that I'm allowing myself to mess up and the other that I'm not. And then I have Virtuaverse that I also kind of stopped halfway through in. And I did like, I was pretty into both those games. Um, Dark Tide is about to come out. It's it's insanity. I can't. The never can't, ending Miguel. list. I know exactly what you mean. It's a Sisyphusian task there's playing a, all these there's games. A heist, there's a heist game I've had for ages called The Master Plan that I and I love those heist games that I've been wanting to get back into one of those. Uh, I I love to Crooks the Heist. I like those. Like it's like uh, it's kind of like Commandos, but it's like you're doing a you're time in everything so that everybody does the thing at the right time to do the heist or like door kickers. door kickers yeah game. i was about to say um and i i play the oh, and there's one what uh frozen synapse is that one yeah that one's more of your classic uh you know door kickers uh tactical yeah everything happens at once Cro crooks and like or or maybe like that peaky blinders game they made oh i heard um, that was good where it's like I, I I was interested in it because it is one of these types of games, but again, I've got fucking I've had Master Plan for like years, and I gotta try it out. Um, You're gonna uh, play XCOM okay. too? I mean, I I it's also like high on my list. Man, and I they, think I think XCOM Chimera Squad is even better though. Yeah, well, I've got to get to that too, and <laughs> maybe by the time I get that freaking or, or that i get to that because i already have it freaking uh tactical breach wizards will be out and then how do i prioritize there um i want to talk about another movie we watched on your goofy channel it's called road meat road meat <laughs> we're circling uh, back to road meat this movie road meat i just want to talk about it because it has a plot line in it that i want i just think it's come back to me so many times that I think it's like a brilliant idea. You know, I mentioned this game Teeth, and I feel like it it's like a great concept for like a Teeth character or something. Is like Road Meat um, is a film. It I like the film that it keeps taking me back to, even though I haven't seen it in a million years and like don't even remember it that well. Is Natural Born Killers the only? thing i think is that it's just like a couple going around killing people whatever 
point is road meat is like a feels like a student film it's from 1989 so it's as old as me and um uh road meat uh yeah so the this crazy couple they're going around it's kind of weird vignettes where they're meet bad people and kill them but then they meet a good person and don't kill her but it turns out her son's a bad guy but her son's story is what and this only comes in like halfway through the film but but this is what intrigues me is the son is like a charlatan um he manages a spirit medium who channels the spirit of elvis and this charlatan son, he's actually me- married to the spirit medium's sister. And he uses this spirit medium to uh, draw people in and then get them involved in these charities that are actually scams that he skims from and whatnot. But when we meet him in the film, at the time that we find him, he is... Uh, deeply in debt and in big trouble because the spirit of Elvis that the spirit medium channels, that's not fake. The spirit medium really does uncontrollably channel the spirit of Elvis uh, at random intervals. And the spirit of Elvis has come out and blown the lid off this scam. He came out and did a press conference and was like, these people are taking money. Uh, You should be giving to these charities. It's all a scam. Thank you very much. And he takes off. And it's like, that. I love that idea. Is like, there is a, a charlatan who uses this, like, the supernatural and the occult to kind of con people. But then in actuality, the supernatural part of his gig is legitimate and then betrays him such that his scam falls apart. I think that's a winner all the way. Yeah. Or maybe he has multiple spirit guides that he draws upon and they could be in conflict over whether or not to help or hinder his plans. Yeah. Um, Road Meat also has a good theme song and a good uh, goofy cutaway to a weird commercial, uh, which has, it's it's very Cheddar Goblin uh, from the film Mandy, if you've seen that. Um, if you want to see those things, I think McGill's put them up on YouTube. So Road Meat theme song, Road Meat. Uh, it's Doctor's Fried Chicken because the fried chicken franchise is themed like after surgery, I guess, or hospitals. It's Doctor's yeah. Fried Chicken Catfish Sunday. <laughs> Wild. I want to make another uh, shout out uh, just because I um, I was, uh, you know, I've been reading that teeth beta and uh, it mentions in the intro... Uh, it gives a shout out to, I think, John Harper, the, uh, creator of, um, Blades in the Dark. I hope I have that name right. Uh, I'm, I'm, feel certain that his last name is Harper. Um, but it also gives a shout out. It says, uh, and to Powered by the Apocalypse, without which blades in the dark would not exist and i was i was kind of 
looking into that and i don't know the whole i still haven't determined the whole lineage of this but i think what's interesting is that powered by the apocalypse also a very very popular uh system that has very similar um basic tenets in terms of like how you measure success and complication and whatnot in dice rolls but um and, and also done by the McElroys for their second season of their show actually they did a a monster of the week game which is a powered by the apocalypse game but i want to shout that out because powered by the apocalypse is created by the guy who did in a wicked age um did he did he do he did sorry he didn't do burning wheel did he uh, i don't think so let me look that up yeah now i'm looking it up because now i'm getting confused this is a disaster. This is a podcast disaster. I mean, you didn't give me any fair warning. Uh... No, it's a disaster for me. I should know this stuff. Okay, it's Va- it's Vincent Baker. Vincent Baker in A no, Wicked Age. He... No. So he's done In A Wicked Age. Um, and, and But also, he's, we were talking about him before because he's done... Uh, kill puppies for Satan. He's done dogs in the vineyard, the Mormon game, the Mormon <laughs> game. But I see these accolades being uh, thrown at this guy, and I'm like, maybe we gave, maybe I gave him short shrift. Maybe he's very important. Him and his wife, uh, who who worked on the powered by the apocalypse system, to my understanding, maybe he is a, a luminary of the RPG community that is responsible for systems that have gone on to inform some of the most successful games in the industry. I don't know about that. Maybe and and maybe I, he should have more respect. I just still think that I can reserve the right. To hate the Mormon game on principle. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah? I see no reason. Why can't you hate something? I don't know. I don't want it to sound like I'm judging him. You know what I hate? Here's a recent hate. Man, I kind of hate New Brunswick. (laughs) Yeah? What? What about New Brunswick? I've never been there. So, uh, I look for. Are you gonna get canceled? Am I gonna get canceled? No, I mean, I, apologies to people who live in New Brunswick and love New Brunswick. I think you're allowed to hate a place. I went to Paris and I hated it, and people love that place. But, uh. Gray Paris, I called it. It's all gray. In a few weeks' time, I'm doing a road trip to Quebec City to see my dad. And to get there, you gotta drive through New Brunswick. And so I was like, all right, you know what? It's a long drive. It's eight hours from me to Quebec City. And I was like, how about I break it up? I'll stop someplace nice in New Brunswick for a night. And, you know, I'll see something cool while I'm there. And then move on, make it a nice leisurely trip. But man, there's like nothing in New Brunswick. (laughs) I, I looked up a bunch of lists on like TripAdvisor and stuff. It was like 15 cool things to do in New Brunswick. More than one list. One of the items was visit Nova Scotia. um, (laughs) It's a cool thing to do in New Brunswick. Go somewhere else. What what about uh, game stores? What if you did a tour of game stores in New Brunswick? Because I wouldn't have thought that there was any game stores around tiny Ontario, but there's a great one. 
you know what? Uh, maybe I'll stop in Fredericton and see if they have a game store. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Maybe there'll be good food. So you, so you're saying you hate this place and you haven't even been there yet? I've driven through. Okay, so I will say actually, I have driven through New Brunswick a couple of times, and the first you don't get a second chance at a first impression, right, Tom? Well, the first time I drove through New Brunswick, it was pretty early in the pandemic when I moved to PEI. And New Brunswick had a policy where if you're not from New Brunswick, just drive on, man. They wouldn't even let me use the bathroom at a rest stop because I wasn't from New Brunswick. And, and like it was official policy, too. Like if you're not from this province, this is us locking down. If you're not from here, you can't stop here. And so they wouldn't even let me go pee. I had to pee in a ditch. Hey, man. That's the New Brunswick ditch. <laughs> so, boo, New Brunswick. Do better. But I mean, like, I don't, you know, I don't wish you ill. <laughs> All right. Well, anyways, um, Powered by the Apocalypse, also maybe a thing. I don't know if it's something maybe to look into before you look into Blades in the Dark. Uh, again, I was just surprised by what I had read. I was like, oh, is there some sort of connection there? Haven't figured it out myself. Um, they are made by different people, but maybe, you know, Harper has uh, actively cited... Uh, baker's powered by the apocalypse as an inspiration is very likely he has in which case uh interesting who knows perhaps we'll explore not it not me on the rpg danger room oh yeah that could be me with that i think uh i'm ready to start getting back to our old ctr hots here did you have anything else to talk about or anything Miguel? no let's dive in all right so rhythm they get to the realm of Rhythen, and as you may remember from the last episode, uh, they had departed in boats, uh, uh, in a speedboat, in fact. They were headed via speedboat to this island realm of Rhythen. This one of the Citra Arhala realms has taken the form of an island surrounded by this, this black ooze, the black waters of Citra Arha. Um, so upon reaching the shores of the island realm of Rhythen, the party is reunited with Gutbones and their vehicles. And uh, right there on the shore, on the on the beach of Rhythen, is a public area that I have labeled on the profile maps as a cafe, uh, where the players meet another Chessie's Cupid's client by the name of Angelique. Um, Angelique wasn't entirely likable, and, uh, you know... I keep uh, looking for different uh, points of reference for what these uh, weirdos look like, these uh, citizens of Citra Arha. And I, uh, something hit me when I was trying to think of the description for Angelique is uh, Clyde Barker, back in the day, did a, did a series of uh, action figures for uh, McFarlane toys, Todd McFarlane's uh, like the Spawn Toys action the, figure company, they did yeah. a bunch that were designed by Clive Barker. But not not movie maniacs, right? They weren't from, like, one of his movies? They were two standalone series. One that was just 
like very Cenobite Hellraiser-esque and one that was themed around being like a, a circus freak show uh, and everything was a freaky, freaked out freak thing. Oh, is this at Tortured Souls? Yeah, Clive Barker's Tortured Souls. Oh, these guys are pretty cool. Yeah, so Angelique uh, looked like one of those guys, but the more I think about it, the more I'm like, oh, man, actually, all the Citra Arha guys, I mean, they do have a sort of Cenobite vibe as well, um, but they are also a lot like these Clive Barker's Tortured Souls things. Um, Have you seen uh, the new Hellraiser, Tom? No. I think you mentioned it. I'll tell you what the other the other day because uh, it came up because we're get we're ramping up for this teeth beta, and uh, uh, the I, in an idea for your character, I brought up the yattering, uh, the the sta- the tale of the yattering and Jack, a tale by Clyde Barker. It's probably my favorite of his stories. It's just a little short story from the Book of Blood. But uh, mentioning it, I was like, man, it's been ages. I I barely even remember the details of that story. So I listened to it on YouTube. There's a great audio book or somebody read it. It's got funny little music and everything. The Addering and Jack, it's still a great short story. Do you know it, McGill? It's actually, there's a Tales from the Dark Side episode uh, of it. The name is so familiar. Hang on, I'm looking up. Basically, a demon gets assigned to haunt a guy who is boring. And he's too boring to be driven mad by this demon. He just explains away everything or shrugs off every insane thing that the demon does to him. Uh, it's like it's like if the exorcist had none of the conflict where it's like, God, what is happening to this girl? And instead it was just like, ah, kids these days. Oh, well, I'll just clean it up. And there's this this demon that's just like what no what what are you what the hell what are you talking about how how fucking stupid are you this what um yeah it's a great great funny little Clyde Barker story love it with a, with a horrible little demon named the Yattering. This Tales from the Dark Side episode looks great. I'll have to watch it. Oh, and I, I love I this cover like art it. of the Yattering too. I can see why I this appeals to you. <laughs> I don't like the version of the Yattering and the Tales from the Dark Side where they just make him like a little person with horns or something. Uh, I I like to think of him as looking way more uh, fucked up, uh, creepy, uh, creepy, spooky, you know. But uh, I don't know. I don't. I don't think little people are spookies. That's not. You can't just say that. You can't just do that. Um, cause that, cause that is what they do in the show, right? Like, I'm pretty sure I saw clips from it and it was just like a little guy. Oh yeah. Here's, here's a, a still where it's, it's just a little guy. He's all painted red. And he has, he's sort of done up like a, like a little devil, I guess. Yeah. But I, you know, I don't know. I, yeah, <laughs> there's, there's so, I, you know, my, all this, it's in, it's in poor uh, taste. Yeah, all this bumbling that I'm doing is just, like, that is my whole take on anything with, like, little people in in entertainment. It's like, you know, if if they are actors and, and going for it, good for them. But, you know, um, I don't feel great when I'm watching that insane prison exploitation movie 
and there's that little person smoking crack and attacking people that he's just like a little monster that's uh you know i think that's demeaning <laughs> i think that is fair tom <laughs> anyways so angelique this uh clive barker designed action figure lady um she has thankfully like you know with chessie's cupids um in Citra Arha, they're quickly finding out that, like, it is not the same gig as it was before. It's like, this is a matter of making uh, sort of power arrangements, is like, er, make, like, introducing people so that they can ally to their mutual benefit rather than any real kind of romantic thing. Um, but within that scope, uh, Angelique has very simple uh, goals because due to, like, they've just gotten here to Rhythm, but she explains that there's some sort of rising tension on the island, and she just wants desperately to be reassigned from Rhythm to another realm. That's so Rhythm TH, right? Rhythm, yeah. Uh, W-R-I-T-H-E-N. Again, track from the portal album swarth not to be confused with riven the sequel to mist you know it's funny i think about i sometimes wonder like like there was the guy uh from behold the octopus i went and told him like hey i made your thing into a thing in my rpg i wonder like portal seem like pretty uh hardcore dudes like they're always <laughs> they only ever see him in these wacky ass costumes and stuff and their music is like a wall of noise from beyond the far realms and, and it's insanity. And I know I've read about how like they're the weird sort of mythology of their lyrics and their, their albums and the words that they use and everything. So like the strange language and the things like swarth and rhythm and, and rhythm and, and whatever any of this stuff is. Um, I know that I've read somewhere that, they had explicitly like maybe they had started off as sort of maybe a Lovecraftian themed band, but then they decided they wanted to get away from that and make like their own weird mythos. And that is what like things like Gloomer Funnel and all their insane beyond the veil stuff is. And so I wonder it's like by then taking their, unique undefined mythos and turning it into my well-defined mythos and being like well this is what the gloomer funnel is and this is what i wonder if that would kind of annoy them actually like i wonder if one of these days i'm gonna get like the like non-legal equivalent of like a cease and desist from a guy with a speaker for a head ah uh, i mean i i doubt that tom that uh, you're not you're not like vending their entire catalog as your own mythos no but like that like i think that would be grounds for a, a real legal cease and desist this is like the non-legal equivalent where it's like hey, hey stop it <laughs> pe people keep getting redirected to your stupid podcast and now they think that our band talks about your role-playing game <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I don't know. I think they'd pro I think they'd probably be flattered. Like that's I like that's to fandom, think that Portal man. is cool dudes, but maybe they're maybe they're too serious for that, you know? You never know mm. with metal bands. 
I don't know, anybody anybody who makes up their own mythos and dresses in a wild costume, like, I just wind up thinking of Guar. And I bet Guar is cool with all that nonsense. So if you're going to do a one of those extreme costumed mythologizing shticks, you better be prepared for fans to to come up with their own material too. Man, by the way, this is this is kind of off the off the trail, but um they just announced this tour. Do you know the band Sabaton? No. They're like heavy metal for like dads who like World War II documentaries. <laughs> like uh like what? They do metal covers of like it's a long way to Tipperary? No, like they do metal songs about the Red Baron and the March <laughs> to Such and Such. And they're like, Panzer, watch out for the Panzer. <laughs> the Panzer is coming That's for amazing. you. And, um, that is a, a, a comedic rendition of what Sabaton is like. But so Sabaton... I can't. I think they are headlining. They've been announced for this tour. They are headlining. Uh, I think it's called the Tour to End All Tours, and it is Sabaton headlining, supported by Baby Metal. Baby Metal. And do you know Baby Metal? No. What's Baby Metal? They're, they're the little girls from Japan that do the like super hardcore metal that like everybody loves. Oh, and, uh, I think they, I've they seen got, them. I just didn't know Dragon that that Force was once. baby metal. I was so certain that like baby metal had been in the. I'm sure it has. I know I've seen. Channel. I know I've seen that. Uh, they, they there was a baby metal track on the trailer for Tiny Tina's Wonderland. Ah, uh, they have a song called "Give Me Chocolate." It was like their big, their first big hit. Baby Metal fully rocks, by the way. Um, like, their their albums are genuinely, I think, uh, smash hits, in my opinion. Top to bottom, I, I love, like, I think they are solid albums. Uh, all killer, no filler, basically, is my take. Because um, they jump all over the place. That that new one has got a, that or the newer one. I guess there's probably a new one. I, I don't know. Point is on their album, uh, their second album maybe they have a song called "Tales of the Destinies" and it's like totally bizarre. It's like they decided to do like prog for a song. Anyways, uh, or like team up with Dream Theater or something. Then, but but that's not even it. Do you know Lordy? No, those they're like the Guar that won Eurovision one year. No. So they're from Finland, and they are like they're full on dress up like monsters, uh, pretty accessible. They their big hit that they won Eurovision with was called Hard Rock Hallelujah. Um, but but yeah, they are like uh, oh, they're like I have seen these guys too. The, the problem here is that I just don't know the names of all these things. I've totally seen music videos by Lordy. So this tour that just got announced is Sabaton supported by baby metal and lordy that sounds insane i man i can't imagine how many like like i the thing is the baby metal thing like i wonder if there's generally gonna be like kids coming to this show with their dad with like a bunch of like 
neckbeards who like songs about yeah warhammer where are the overlaps in this venn diagram (laughs) we are gonna find out and it's gonna be wild going like that's i mean i don't i don't know if they're uh, i don't know where they're going or Uh, what like uh i just saw it and i was like wait what well they're definitely i can tell you this they're definitely not coming to the maritimes so it's up to you man Yeah, well, we'll we'll see if they. Uh, I I mean, maybe a little hit up uh, Montreal or Toronto or something. I, I bet Toronto. That'd be, God, that'd be wild. <laughs> um, I don't know if I have that. I I think I'm. I think I might be too old for that. Honestly, I think my my bones might not handle the earth shaking consequence of that that tour. Been a long time since I saw the Unholy Alliance. Angelique wants to get out of Riven. So all the players need to do is find a match for her that is uh yeah, that that basically facilitates this. And very conveniently, they find someone else right on the shores of Riven who's hanging around this guy uh named Shaitanis. He's like this monstrous guy. He's got horns and tusks and he's in like some sort of exosuit. But this guy, he is from Eric Shirinal, and he wants to be transferred to Riven. So they're like, okay, well, all we have to do is set up a, a swap, is like get these guys together and then arrange so that Shaitanis comes to Riven and then Angelique can go to Eric Shirinal in his place. And it's like an easy switcheroo within the system of Citra Arha doesn't even... Or, or the Nightside Eclipse doesn't even cause a lot of uh, dissonance or anything. Um, but the trick is that to make the arrangement actually happen, like they can't just have these people meet up and be like, okay, now swap. They need to get the clearance from the Lich in charge of Riven, which, you know, their proto- their procedure for these realms of Citra has been pretty consistently like arrive at the realm find the person in charge, the lich or vampire that is in charge of the realm, get in their good graces, you know, figure things out that way and then move on. So, um, they, they, in order to actually make this swap, they're going to have to continue with that and go meet the lich in charge of Rhythm, who is named Belphegor. A lot of these, uh, names they stray into sort of more uh traditionally demonic names and things like that but i find that citra arha everything is just sort of like named in reference to more uh scary things you know it's all just names it's all just names well it's like that time they had a a messed up dragon named tiamat but that wasn't tiamat it's just named tiamat it's like they're they called it Tiamat to spook people, I guess. Um, but the uh, the the other thing driving this is that Shaitanis says, like, if they can make this switcheroo work, if they can get the clearance to do this swap, then in exchange, Shaitanis promises to give the players incriminating evidence of some kind against his superior in his home realm of Eric Shirinel, who is a, Eric Shirinel, who is a, a vampire by the name of Astroth. So basically, if they help this guy by doing this Chessie's Cupid's maneuver, um, then they get dirt 
on uh, higher up in one of the other realms of Citra Arha. So they set about exploring the island and trying to seek out the realm's lich, uh, Belfagor. The party quickly learns that they can't really gain immediate audience with the lich because uh, the lich is busy with that same sort of rising tension in the island that Angelique uh, mentioned in the first place. I, I find, like, looking through this notes, like, I like this one because it feels very coherent it's like everything leads into the next thing it's like angelique says she wants to get off the island because of rising tension they find somebody who wants to get on the island is willing to switch but they're gonna have to go uh see the you know head of the island to arrange that which they're gonna do anyway they go to see the head of the island but they can't because of the rising tension and it's like okay it's all sort of holding together they go past the sort of palace area where Belphegor is, is holding court and there's a kind of hanging gardens where the party meets this very plain looking zombie woman named Sophia. She's kind of like a, a, a just a handmaiden or whatever in the gardens. Um, but she gives the players a lead on how to gain Belphegor's attention and favor because she expresses concern that there's this temple on the island that's gone silent. There's a priest of the temple, uh, like the, the priest who runs the temple uh, is named Beelzebub. He's a fly-headed undead cleric who serves Belphegor. And Beel's services as a cleric are critical to the lich who runs the realm. So the players resolve to investigate Beelzebub's temple and set things right if they can. Because if they do that, then they'll be in... Belphegor's good graces. But not that Beelzebub, right? It's just a name. Not that Beelzebub, because in Dungeons and Dragons, in because they didn't want to play into that satanic panic scare, they called the guy in Dungeons and Dragons like Bazabul or something. Bal Al Zabul, so I think it is. Yeah, it's just it's just like how instead of Kana, it's Kania. You know? Yeah, but they're all just names, right? I mean, for Citra Arha, it is. Like, you know, if somebody was named Baal Zabul or whatever, like it was in Dungeons & Dragons, then there might be confusion. Then there might be a player who's like, wait, is that the same one? But in this one, it's like, wait, is that the Beelzebub? And it's like, you don't know about any Beelzebub in Dungeons & Dragons. This is the first you're hearing of it, and it's this weird undead guy. Um, maybe the you know, Citra Arha is this like multi-dimensional scourge. It's possible that they have been to a dimension where Beelzebub was a thing and they just took the name, uh, maybe to, you know, this guy's a spooky undead cleric. Maybe they were using him, uh, against some sort of culture that believed in that place somewhere, that guy somewhere, uh, wherever the case is, the point is we've got our mission now is that the players are like, okay, we need to get to Belphegor and see him to accomplish our Chessie's Cupid's goal. So he needs the services of this cleric who has apparently gone quiet in his temple. We should go investigate that. And if we can be the heroes in that situation, then Belphegor will definitely grant us an audience. So they head for the temple. The players are ambushed in the garden by cultists, uh, the cultists sort of spring on them as they're as they're in the as they're trying to leave the garden, um, as they're headed towards the temple. When they defeat the cultists, the players find the keys to the temple on the defeated cultists. 
So they go to the temple and they enter and the party finds it all smashed up and ruined and it's inhabited by more cultists and Beelzebub is there, but he's possessed, which I always thought was kind of funny is this idea that there's a character named Beelzebub and then he's possessed. What are the odds? Uh, but Beelzebub is possessed. He's standing in the center of four abyssal braziers. Again, this is straight out of the uh, mini adventures at the start of the Rage of Demons Adventures League season. But they end up having to exercise the possessing shadow that's controlling Beelzebub. And who's uh, who is the shadow? What's his name? Did I miss it? I didn't give him a name. It's just some some. Demon. It should be some something really mundane, like Norm, <laughs> like Bob from uh, Twin Peaks. There you go. But I'm just thinking, like, if be you know, usually people are p- possessed by Beelzebub. Who's Beelzebub possessed by? I don't know. It's possessed by Reagan. Reagan. Yeah, there um, you go. No, but Reagan was so, possessed by Pazuzu. Yeah. And, and Pazuzu is very much in Dungeons and Dragons, like full on. Uh, if you say his name three times, he'll show up and grant you a wish, but it'll always come back to bite you. Um, Pazuzu's a whackums, whackums. He's not even a. I think he's supposed to be something like older than a demon, but like he got qualified as a demon lord or something. So uh, he, he, man, he was in that uh, cool um, mix and booze journal of villainy along with uh, Cryonax and 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 Mephistopheles, Go Mephisto. Anyways, so the way this encounter works, the players have to deactivate the brazers. The braziers using either magic or by risking abyssal harm. Like if they attack the braziers directly, they can damage them, but then they take hurt from the uh, they take damage from the abyssal braziers. And the whole time, though, the players have to ensure that the possessed Beelzebub himself is not actually killed. Like if they kill the Beelzebub vessel, he's just dead. So there's this sort of thing where the players have to figure out. It's like okay, we have to deactivate deactivate the braziers while fighting these cultists but also make sure that we don't actually do damage to beelzebub um and so the cultists are obviously frustrating their efforts to deactivate the braziers the players are clever enough to avoid harming beelzebub himself despite beelzebub also trying to attack them because he's possessed by the shadow um but once the cultists are dispatched and the shadow is banished Party brings the cleric back to his lich master, Belphegor. In gratitude, Belphegor gives the party a car! A brand new car! <laughs> a brand the new car! Gave the party, the Belphegor, gave, Belphegor gave the party a car to add to their van and truck. The party was also able to arrange the transfer between Shaitanis and Angelique, which to their minds would qualify as satisfying the Chessies Cupid's assignment. Basically, they matched Angelique and Shaitanis along the terms of uh, Citra Arha season of Jesse's Cupids. Moreover, their experience here and audience with Belphegor reels, reveals more regarding the demonic incursion into Citra Arha and the conflict that may be brewing throughout the realms as a result. If the, if the people of Citra Arha can be possessed by the encroaching demons, and who knows what will happen to the structure of Citra Arha in the Nightside Eclipse... So Tom. Oh, and uh, I included little note pages for this one in the noodle in the doodles for this one. 
uh, we got a neat little drawing of the party at this point in the campaign. We got a drawing of Hexakila with his laser gun in one hand and his revolver in the other. We got Mephili with her uh, wand of magic missile and her staff. We got Connor with his sawed-off shotgun and his shield and his uh, heavy armor. And then we got Gent with a flaming, flaming rapier and a jetpack and Kevlar armor. It's great. You know, Kenku, because they can't fly naturally... What's better for a Kenku than a freaking jetpack? <laughs> Can't go without it. Sorry, you were saying. Oh, uh, I was going to ask. Uh, so what does this car look like? This brand new car? I'm, are these stylized vehicles? Or like, they just riding around in, you know, a van? Is it like a like a combi? Like a VW bus? Uh, yeah, I definitely picture the van as looking more like a... Like a Winnebago or something, you know. No, not like a Winnebago, but like, yeah, like a like a like an old hippie van. Like, you know, <laughs> I think VW, you you hit it there, right? VW bus um, or a combi, whichever. Yeah, um, the truck I'm imagining as kind of like because they got that one from the the power plant in Larvae, so I imagine it's more like a flatbed or something like that, um, or or you know, like a. A lorry, as it is, um, or uh, then this car. I don't know. The thing is, I'm not very good at drawing cars. Uh, I feel like I'm okay at doodling a person, but a car always looks kind of misshapen when I draw hmm. it. Not good. I'm not good. At, I think at like drawing mechanical things because there's an amount of precision in the measurements that I don't. Uh, that doesn't come naturally to me. Whereas, like, if it's somebody, if it's some lumpen humanoid shape, or better, a, a monster, then I, I'm, you know, snow holes. You know, I used to do this thing back in high school. There was this guy in one of my classes who used to draw these, like, crazy detailed, like, mech suits. And we would do this thing to pass the time in class where he'd draw a crazy mech suit and they pass it to me. And I'd, like, infest it with a weird, like, alien substance or, like, I'd have a tree growing out of it or something. And I'd pass it back to him. Like, we'd do a little cool. thing like that. Well, that was pretty cool. But it was good. Uh, it, it was interesting in how it highlighted my, my uh... what is the words I'm looking for? Here? Art style? My... Well, my uh, the things that I'm good at and the things that I'm Your not good at. Your strengths and weaknesses. That's what I was looking for uh, as an artist. Got it. Um, but I don't know. I was uh, you had sort of glossed over. You know, you're just like he pulls up in a van. They get a new car. And, and as you know, yeah, in my so, games, so I always is, love to highlight the cool ride that they've just gotten. You know, I pull up some picture. And I yeah, was personally the, picturing like almost more like Mad Maxi vehicles since they're traversing Citra Arha in them. No, they these were like just full on like vehicles as they were. I'm almost imagining like a Lincoln or something. Um, like the like the like, Red Shark from Fear and Loathing. Yeah, maybe I am imagining it with the top, like like with a hard top, ah. honestly. But like. Um, yeah, I don't know a lot about cars. Um, I think if people ask me what my favorite car is, I say a joke car like the Gremlin or the Pinto. Um, 
Uh, I mean, Gremlin uh, is very on brand for you, though. Yeah. Uh, and then I think both those cars look kind of similar. And I think that the Pinto has like a history of like bursting into flames. Yeah, <laughs> they're both hatchbacks. And the Pinto, I believe if you accidentally ran into it from behind, it would like burst into flames. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking kick ass, man. I love that. <laughs> it's like one time... Uh, I was talking to my friend, like, because I am also, like, uh, I, I I have tried to drive before and not, not had success at it. And, it, you know, there's a certain amount of anxiety I have about the idea of driving. I remember talking to a friend of mine. I was like, you know, I think I'd be, I'd feel more comfortable uh, in one of those cars that's basically just kind of like, uh, you know, one of those old-timey cars that's just like kind of a room with wheels on it, like one of those boxes that drives around. And my friend who was like, it, it was Spencer, the guy who played chess, he was like very, very intelligent. He was like, those are famously wildly unsafe. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh, dangus. Anyways. Uh, so yeah, I like, I basically, you asked me the question of what kind of car it was. And my first instinct was to like, look for a doodle of it. And it appears that I hadn't even made the attempt, but if I had, it would probably be just like sort of a weird shrunken looking car that doesn't look like anything. Um, so I, I'm not really sure, you know, maybe the most interaction I've had with cars was in my long uh my long love of gta 2 and in that case all the cars you're just looking at them from the top down so but your players didn't uh didn't ask or suggest anything themselves either huh i mean i probably told them that it had like uh they had you four know. doors and <laughs> a motor yeah i mean it, it like like more than two seats would be a thing. It's not just a two-seater. It's not a coupe. A thing it's like, a sedan. It's a, thi it's a thing in uh, Fortnite. It's like, oh, dang, we can't fit our whole team in this uh, two-seater. It was a good joke. Is why, does a, why does a chicken coop have two doors? I might have said it was a station wagon. I don't know. Station wagon's pretty good. Why does a chicken coop have again, two doors? What here? Here's the thing. I was thinking about this actually. <laughs> He's not taking the bait. Uh, oh shit! Oh, uh, why does a chicken coop have two doors? Because uh, it's two seats. Because if it had four, it would be a sedan. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I don't know nothing about cars. I don't even. <laughs> I wouldn't even got that if you hadn't told me what you just told me that. That's um, why it was the perfect time to deploy it. Yeah. Uh. Because I was thinking about um, in a role-playing game scenario recently, I was thinking about what kind of car like an FBI guy drives. If you think of like an FBI agent driving a car around, what kind of car do you think they drive? Oh, uh, shoot. What is it? It's, all, it's that trademark one, right? It is Lincoln. It's like a Lincoln Continental in black. See, okay, that's what I thought. And I, that does tend to come to mind and that is what i thought of in that scenario so i'm glad to have that affirmation there lincoln continental you know um i think my grandma has one or she had one my my grandpa had one he was a judge um tell it to the fudge uh 
McGill, Tell it to the fudge. Do you have any more questions? Yeah. But that was my question. Tell it to the fudge. This is a statement. Um, no, no further questions. I was just curious about, curious about these vehicles. Like I said, you know, yeah, we're I this mean, uh, we're this my campaign. You know, I would like customize those. That van would have some unique thing about it. It would be a, a custom made van with lots of character. You know, it, you know, it would be always just, breaking down or something like that. It's just ways for the players to get across this wild ass uh, series of realms. I I might give them like one of those uh, heavy metal vans, you know, with the big mural on the side door, like a unicorn or something, and then a fold out bed in the back. I was kind of thinking of that for the the van. I thought that if what you were saying with the VW bus, I thought that would have like the fold out bed. Yeah, well, the the combi is the one that has the bed in the roof. You've seen that, like the van where they you push up the roof and there's a bunk in there. Uh, I don't think they'd have that. Uh. I don't think it'd be that. This is one of those uh, if the van's a rock and don't yeah. come and <laughs> <laughs> Okay, McGill, burning wheel, burning wheel. It says here this might be our last foray into the system. Well, I mean, we could go on and on and on with the burning wheel. Uh, I thought that, you know, we've created this character and then let's put him in a, a fairly typical situation where you, we can do like a few, a bit of dice rolling. You get a sense of, you know, what it's like to actually play the burning wheel uh, in, you know, turn by turn kind of a thing. But uh, I mean, we could go on and on forever there. It's a 600 page source book and it covers just a huge range of topics. And as we've this podcast is now a solo live play featuring Udo, the sunblotter. Yeah, I mean, it, it really could be uh, in order to fully, uh, fully explore every facet of the burning wheel, because there's just so much like uh, I'm looking in the source book here. And in the section right before uh, combat, which is the section I'm one of the sections I'm going to cover, uh, there's this whole section on like how to do an argument. A duel of wits is an extended conflict mechanic used to resolve debate and argument in the game and at the table. Characters use verbal attacks and maneuvers to overpower and destroy their opponent's arguments and make themselves appear to all witnesses correct. The purpose in such a duel is not to reveal the truth, but to put forth your argument in the best light while dismantling your opponent's position. So there is like a whole rule set for how to have a debate in-game. And it is in-depth, man. Like, the, there are charts uh, that you fill out. Volley 1, verbal attack actions, a point or dismiss. Verbal defense actions, avoid obfuscate or rebuttal. Special verbal actions, feint, incite. Hesitation actions, fall prone, run screaming, stand and drool, or swoon. Like, these are all for just arguments, verbal conflicts. Um, so we could go on forever. Uh, this is a very, very deep system. But I thought the most obvious things that people who might be listening to this and are wondering about the burning wheel now that we've created your character like how what's it like when you actually play it i thought that the the two most common things are like a skill check a test as it's called in burning wheel and a fight 
which is also sort of presented like a test. Um, but I mean, if, if there's something that I hit upon where you're like, I want to know a lot more about that, we could go on and on with this one. But, you know, I mean, we've dedicated a lot of episodes to the burning wheel. Uh, so set the scene, man, set the scene. Where is Udo? What's going on? Okay. Well, well, hang on first. I'm going to, I'm going to tell you a bit how this works because it's not as simple as the GM just saying like, roll this. So Okay. Um, the way this works, there, there are four types of tests in the burning wheel. There's the standard test where your GM sets the obstacle. The obstacle is the burning wheel equivalent of the DC. It's the number you gotta hit. Um, versus tests are uh, your opponent's successes are the obstacle. You're rolling against someone else with a dice pool. There are graduated tests. More successes mean greater reward. And uh, graduated tests are almost like skill challenges. Like you're going to do a few of them in a row. And the more successes you get, the bigger the reward. And then link tests, which are also sort of like uh, skill challenges. Multiple related tests in a row that help or hinder one another. And the way these mechanics work uh, involves... Intent and task. So intent and task is the mechanic for resolving actions in the burning wheel. Uh, I should actually give some credit here. Uh, I'm using notes taken from uh, an article in the burning wheel subreddit. Uh, just called the guide FAQ chapter one, the basics of the burning wheel by a user named Brave Traveler. Uh, so intent and task, the mechanic for resolving actions in burning wheel and the core of the game. Players act in the burning wheel by narrating an intent that describes something they want to happen in the story, and then they describe the task their character will engage uh, to achieve this intent. So for an example, the player says, I want my character to escape from the guards who are chasing him. That's the intent. The GM says, how do you escape the guards? And the player says, he's going to pick the lock of the storeroom nearby and slip in unseen. So pretty basic, right? Like this is the usual give and take of like a, like a Dungeons and Dragons interaction. But uh, there's a very deliberate rhythm with the burning wheel. Like state your intent, state your task. Then this I thought was pretty cool. If the GM can think of an interesting, relevant alternative outcome to the player's intent, the player tests to see if they achieve the intent they described or if a GM-presented alternative comes to pass. Um, so first up, you, you only test if the GM can think of something cool, and if there is no interesting potential failure condition, then the player achieves their intent without testing, and this is called roll the dice or say yes. So uh, then the other thing is... Uh, if the GM can think of an interesting, relevant failure condition, the skill stat or attribute, which are collectively known as abilities, uh, that is used if a test occurs is determined by the player's description of the task, and the GM sort of decides which is most appropriate. So, like, the player in this uh, example says, I'm going to pick the lock of the storeroom nearby and slip in. The GM says, okay, that sounds like a lock-picking ability check or ability test. 
the GM then states the failure condition. So if you get this wrong, if you fail, the guards are going to see you and you'll be trapped in the storeroom. And then the player decides whether or not to roll based on that failure condition. That is uh, reminiscent of Blades in the Dark's system of threat and effect where you state your intent and then the GM... It's also funny, I I was reading this in, in the Teeth beta and I'm not sure how well I held to this when we did the Cyberpunk game, but like... I'm supposed to, as GM, when you do the action and we have to roll for it, I'm supposed to tell you what the threat and effect is for that action. And so for combat, it's generally risky. Um, But if you have something very set up and nothing can go wrong, basically, then it's controlled. Uh, And if you want to have greater effect, you could say that you want to do something desperate instead of just something risky. Like you want to go all out instead of just making a normal attack. What I think is really interesting about this is the sort of give and take between the GM and the player, where there is this like set rhythm that you get into uh, when it comes to these things. You know, state your intent, state the task. GM then says, all right, uh, we're going to test for that because if you fail, this is going to happen. And here is the number you're going to have to hit in order to succeed. And then the player goes, okay, sounds fair. I'll roll. And it's just, it's interesting to me, like all that's up front and the, the obstacle, the DC that you're trying to hit is up front as well. It's not always the case in D&D. In fact, I as a DM tend to hide a lot of DCs uh, from my players. Um, you know, like like uh, like a monster's armor class, for example. You don't really broadcast it necessarily. Absolutely. But then at the same time, it's funny because then with Blades in the Dark, it goes completely the other way where everyone always knows exactly what target numbers are needed because a six is always a success. A four or five is always a mixed success with, um, you know, that whole thing of like, you look for the highest die. That's the thing of, you know, the GM doesn't have to think of a target number. The players do not have to guess at what their target number is. It's success is always success. Mixed success is always mixed success. Failure is always failure. So that is how the like this the core interactions of the burning wheel work with this test intent task obstacle sort of rhythmic interaction. And uh a lot of the uh actual play videos like the the long form videos of groups playing the burning wheel that I've been watching uh most of it is this stuff. Like it's a lot of it is just like narrative based. It's a very story driven game. So players are, you know, the, the GM is telling a story. The players are interacting with it and contributing sort of their own ideas and narration in this large collaborative storytelling setting. And then from time to time, uh, something will be tested and this little sort of rhythmic thing will happen. Um, 
it seems like a lot of the GMs on YouTube, I mean, uh, to be in fairness, call and response. If you're a blues, very call and response. Um, I will say that uh, because I haven't like I'm not maybe maybe this says something about my lack of commitment to sparkle motion here. But uh, I I really don't have the time to watch like 20 hours of some play group playing the burning wheel. Sorry, I got I got a lot to go. So a lot of these videos I've watched like the first two hours of it. And maybe it's just that at the beginning of these campaigns, there hasn't been a lot of combat or anything. But I'm finding a lot of the burning wheel games like they're very narrative driven and combat doesn't really seem to be a priority, at least in the videos that I've seen. And again, all of those are at the beginning of campaigns. But uh, I don't know. I'd probably have some combat within the first couple of hours of my game. That's just me. Uh, But uh, that said, as with everything in the Burning Wheel, combat is very in-depth and complicated. The Burning Wheel, aside from uh, the Duel of Wits thing that I touched upon, where there are extensive rules for verbal combat very in-depth rules in order to have an argument in game. Uh, When it comes to physical combat, like actual fighting, there are three combat systems. There's one called Bloody Versus, which is just an extension of the type of interaction that we were talking about. Like, you could just roll fight, your fight skill, your fight ability, uh, and succeed or fail. And as a GM, I'd probably use that for something very simple where it's like, you know, the guy who's mouthing off at me at the bar, who's obviously just a drunk and not a warrior. I want to punch him in the face. I'd probably just go like, okay, you know, roll your fight check, succeed or fail, you punch him in the face. Um, So that's like a little bloody versus. Then there's range and cover, which is the one we're going to explore because, of course, it applies greatly to a goblin sunblotter like Udo. And it is a cat and mouse system. So his instinct is that he never go faces things head on. Exactly, and like his his weapons load out is a bow and a crossbow. Um, yeah. But I've got claws and teeth. So uh, yeah, range and cover. This cat and mouse system modeling like hit and run, stalking, and missile weapon only conflicts, and then the fight combat system which is a blow-by-blow subsystem for melees that is itself quite detailed. So to run a full-on fight in Burning Wheel, you have to understand the fight system, that's capital F with an exclamation point, as a GM. And to understand fight, you have to grasp the task intent system, which we talked about, which is, like, it is deeper than it appears from reading. Um, And you need a lot of hands-on experience with the system to even get that. So... Like, Burning Wheel is very clearly a game that everyone needs a lot of time to learn, including the GM, and it's difficult to jump into just the deep end of a system. So, like, even after all of these episodes where I've been covering it uh, and talking about character burning and all that, like, I actually, character burning is sort of a perfect example of what I'm saying. Like, look how long it took us to make a character and all those different steps that we had to do to create this, like, rich tapestry of Udo the Goblin Sunblotter's uh, sun life. Well, just about everything in Burning Wheel is like that. So. You said Sunblatter. Sunblatter, yeah. There. That's what happens when you drink a whole jug of Sunny D. 
So let's see here. Uh, we're going to explore range and cover. And I'll just, I'll go through these rules of it. Oh God, this is like so many pages. I don't know if I can even do it, Tom. There's so many here. Weapon range dice. Sunny Delete was a high citrus sugary drink that uh, sells, I don't know if they have it outside of North America, but they give it to kids. Fucking jack them up on citrus. God, it is, it is wild here, like... I thought I could just sort of skim through this, but but there are. I'm just covering for you, McGill. I just uh, they had this great iconic commercial <laughs> where the kids go <laughs> to the, the fridge purple stuff, and, and the... one looks into the fridge and he says, uh, "Let's see, we got a uh, cola, purple stuff. Hey, Sunny D, but man." Who would pass on that purple stuff? You don't have to cover me, though, because this is just reiterating the point that I've been making again and again when it comes to the burning wheel, which is just like, it is such an in-depth system that even something like firing your crossbow, which I thought like, okay, like most of this, most of this system at its core is the task intent obstacle test system that I just described, right? And even though that goes much deeper than what I just described, like that's, we can at least understand that. And so I was like, how, you know, firing a crossbow, how hard can it be? I think the thing to do here is we're just going to say Udo is on a large open field in a crowd of fellow goblin, 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 uh, sun blotters. Uh, all of your comrades have their bows out, but nobody's really looking your way. You could very easily use your crossbow if you wanted. And your quarry is just uh, the single surviving enemy soldier. You've mowed successfully, like, rained uh, arrows down upon a battalion of human soldiers in light armor. And uh, there's just one guy left, and your commander gives the shot. Everybody got to fire a volley right at him. Okay. So what does Udo do? Uh, well, if everybody's taking the shot, then it could be a good opportunity to sneak a little crossbow practice in here. So Udo gets out his crossbow. And is he going to like aim directly or is he going to fire it up in the air? I got to aim directly. I'm going to shoot this guy. All right. So let's see here. Got our battlefield... It's an open, rocky plain. Your range. Oh, how does range even factor into it? You, you, okay, you have optimal range. So uh, your the base objective for having optimal range is two. So you're going to have to hit a minimum of two. Then uh, we set our objectives. So condition for achieving the objective. Your ob objective is to... Hit the guy, but this is starting to feel like a thing that I wouldn't even really roll for because the guy is going to get hit by a ton of arrows, right? Doesn't mean that you like, have to do it. Maybe, maybe, okay, The we're going to retcon this. Your commander, uh, everybody else is, is putting away their weaponry and your commander notices the one surviving uh, soldier. He's running across the battlefield and your commander barks at you because you're the nearest one. Udo, take him down. Oh, geez, but now the commander's looking right at no, me? No, he's looking at the soldier, pointing in the soldier's direction. Oh, geez. Oh, geez. Um, 
So in so in in this case, right? You gotta you gotta have a uh, an objective here. So your objective would probably just be to kill this guy, right? Well, really, my objective is to kill this guy without the commander noticing that I'm breaking the Perfect. rules. If I'm doing the cross. Perfect. So achieving the objective will end the conflict. And the, the purpose of setting an objective focuses the conflict and also increases tension. And so here we go. There is some tension. Your objective is to take this guy down with your crossbow without your commander seeing. We've already got some tension. So uh, battle using range and cover often involve many characters. In this case, we're really only doing three. Break down into teams before you start using these rules. A team can be as small as one character and as large as ten. In general, a player character, the player characters should form one team, and the GM should for, uh, should form another. In this case, I'll say uh, there's two teams, and you and your commander are on one, and the soldiers on the other. Right. All right. So now here's here's the interesting thing. Each team privately chooses. This is actually this relates to what we were talking about. I'm realizing now. They're doing, like, the door kickers thing. Each team privately chooses a set of three maneuvers for this exchange of range and cover. One for each volley. All teams reveal their first volley maneuver at the same time, determine the results using the field maneuvers table, and then any team member can make the test provided it's appropriate to the situation and any other rules. So, I have to ask, is there a reason why in this example it's just one guy left? I don't know. I thought it would be easy just to do a very basic conflict, right? I just feel like there should, like, the, the real tension in the scene should be, like, you know, we're this is a full-on battle. There's a regiment of humans. There's a regiment of goblins. I'm in it. And maybe there's, like, a lieutenant in that regiment, and I bet that I could get a direct hit on him with my crossbow but um, I also want to do it without being noticed that I didn't follow the rules. Okay. I mean, we can do that. Uh, ultimately, what I'm just trying to like get to the point where we're even going to roll to see if you hit it. So we're, you start by having your team set. In this case, really, the team, the team is basically like me versus you, right? Um, so we each choose a set of three maneuvers for this exchange, uh, one for each volley. So we're, we're just going to do like, we're going to hide three moves and then reveal our first one at the same time and make appropriate tests. And then uh, the team, so the test, oh my God, the test is... Uh, the field maneuvers table and description, which is several pages down here. Field maneuvers. Here we go. So some examples of things that you starting to think this bo this meat has a bit of bone in it. <laughs> yeah, like 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 palladium. Very much so. Um, so like here's here are examples. Uh, let's just do one volley. We'll we'll just each pick one action. To reveal at the same time. Uh, so I'm going to read out different actions. And if you want uh, to know the associated ability that you'll be rolling with that, then uh, I can tell you that as well. But just, you know, in your head, pick one of the following actions. I'll pick one of the following actions. 
and then we'll compare notes. All right. Uh, close, sneak in, flank, charge, maintain, hold, withdraw, sneak out, fall back, or retreat. Believe I am. So, what I want to do is use my hiding ability to sort of fade into this crowd of goblins. So, I think I'm withdrawing. Withdrawing? Uh, not sneak in? Is sneak in sneaking S in toward the enemy? Sneak in and sneak out are two actions. And uh, I think you just get to sort of dictate what you mean by that. Sneak in and sneak out both use your stealthy ability, which is why it sounds to me like that might be what you want to do, right? Okay. What is withdraw? Withdraw is speed. It, it looks like it's more like a like a retreat kind of. Uh... Okay. Then yeah, I'll do the sneak. I'll say I'm sneaking into uh, or out of the front line. So the point is that I am trying to fade into this larger group of goblins. All right. And uh, the the guy that you're attacking, Lieutenant, you said, he's sure. trying to hold. So, um, so the check is going to be, or the test is going to be stealthy versus observe, I believe. Let me just pull up, uh, pull up a sheet here. Gosh, man, so many things. This is very much like, uh, like you said, this is very palladium. A lot of, a lot of bone in this meat. Okay, observation. There we go. So it's going to be a stealthy versus observation check. Now that we have chosen our maneuvers. You have optimal range. The team that wins the maneuver test can spend its margin of success to allow team members to perform actions. Ah, uh, what? Ah, uh, yeah. Let me see here. Okay, maneuver. So the obstacle is two, because you have optimal range. The oh my god. Tom, this is getting like... Every time I turn the page, it's even deeper. Stride advantage. The character with the longest stride gets advantage to maneuver. Men, orcs, trolls, and great spiders have a stride of seven. Um, okay, so... Uh, but we each have uh, equal stride because it's a man versus an orc. So stride seven. The character wins maneuver first. He Okay, so that means... So what we what we have to do is first we have to roll this maneuver test, then we have to uh, determine who won the maneuver test and how many successes you got, and then you can spend your successes to do additional actions. This is like uh, like confirming a crit, but to an extreme where you're you're basically confirming that you just you get to do it so that is it like initiative kind of but but like um like a turn by turn initiative it seems are are you really supposed to use this system that often in this game 
I've got the sense that maybe this is like a rare system for like if you want to do a really hardcore battle, but then most of the time you're just going to be doing little narrative, you know, scenes where it's like I don't know, man. I like, like guy, listen, I shoot but listen guy. to this. Like, this is a whole section in combat called range and cover. When a character wishes to bring down his quarry at range with a bow, javelin, or even a rock. We use a similar system to Duel of Wits. Duel of Wits is the argument system I was telling. Play oh. Players plan an overall strategy for their characters by scripting maneuvers in three consecutive volleys. This time, though, there's no body of argument to destroy. You're trying to outmaneuver or simply kill another character. Use these rules when your characters are in a skirmish or a chase in which at least one group has missiles and the will to use them. Before you can get into, before you can take a shot, you must get into position. These rules determine who gets into position and thus who gets to take a shot using versus tests between stats, skills, and attributes. The winner of the test has the opportunity to shoot, whereas his target has exposed himself or been outmaneuvered. So it is sort of like a complex system of determining positioning and initiative, after which you can use the successes from the test that determines your initiative to effectively buy actions to use on your turn. Okay. <laughs> like, man, I don't know. I don't know if I can, if I can effectively do this. Um, here we go. Okay, here we go. Uh, I'm going to just, I'll read out the example they have here. Maybe this will enlighten us further, okay? <laughs> Are you with me, Tom? Uh, okay. An orc, an orc follower needs to gain a bridge and hold it before an elven ranger crosses it. See, this is another example where it's just, it's just two characters. Like, this is what I was sort of aiming for, is just the most basic form of combat. The GM starts them both out of range in lightly wooded terrain on either side of a river from one another. To gain the bridge, the characters must use a closing maneuver successfully. The orc has a hunting bow. The elf has an elven bow. Each, each side plans their maneuvers. The orc chooses to sneak in, then maintain, and then hold the bridge, thinking, I'll sneak in to get to the bridge, I will maintain and set up a position there, so and then I'll I'm hold it. So I'm supposed to call all. I'm supposed to call all three maneuvers at in once. advance in secret. Okay, shit. So I had. I thought that I, I was, was supposed to tell you that I was sneaking in first. Well, as I said, like I, as I said, I was trying to do the the most condensed version of this with just like one motion. But yes, like oh, okay. let's I let's see. do it by the rules. Uh, so. So, you know, you would, I'll read through this example and maybe we can run it. Uh, you need to plan out your three maneuvers in succession in secret. In this case, the orc is going to sneak in, then maintain his position and hold the bridge. The elf wants to maintain position, hoping to gain an advantage, then flank to pin down the orc, and then close to rush the orc. In the first volley sneak in against maintain we test the orcs stealthy against the elf's speed since it's a skill against a stat the stat suffers a double obstacle penalty so the orc rolls stealthy four plus one b which is black so black four plus one uh, plus one die from his hunting bow 
So for me, the question is, uh, what is stealthy? It's a skill. I don't see it here. But it's a skill I don't have. I guess have. it's a skill you don't have. Okay. Uh, is but that right? The, now, the trait hiding. Steel, stride. St- yeah, let me see. Is it a general skill? Stealthy is a general skill. Interesting. But I don't have it. Uh, oh, but it is rooted in speed. So we can test your speed... Uh, just with no additional modifier. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's rooted in speed. Um, so this orc rolls basically four plus one die. He rolls three successes, but those count as... But for me, for me, it would be three die, right? right? And they're D6? Yes. Let's see. Oh, shit, it didn't roll them because they they all gotta like i need to know what each of them says right i don't add them up that's right uh okay i got a two a four and a six that's two successes okay so um and our other guy was doing observation. So uh, that's skill versus skill. So there's no penalty. So you got two successes. In this example, though, uh, the stat suffers a penalty because uh, it is rolling against a skill. Uh, so the orc rolls three successes, which effectively count as six successes against the elf because of the stat versus skill penalty. The elf gets his black... Wait, what? He doubles his success? No, they've written it weird. It's really, it's a penalty for the stat. If, uh, for whatever reason, I I can't tell you why it is, but if you're testing a skill against a stat, the stat, the obstacle number is doubled. So the orc got three successes, but... The elf has to treat that like six successes that he has to beat. Because the elf is using a yes. stat? The elf's action. But in my the elf's case, action of maintain, case, the the root of maintain is just the speed the speed stat. In your case, you are testing the stealthy skill, case, but you don't have that skill, so we're just root using the root of that skill. Because you don't have any modifier on it, right? But that does that mean I am? Does that count as using a stat? <sighs> now I got to look this up. Okay, so I guess in this case it still counts as a skill check because what's determining what we need to roll is the uh, the field maneuvers chart, right? Like the actions that we can take in a range and cover combat are determined by this field maneuvers chart. And the field maneuvers chart has an associated stat or skill attached to each action. So you wanted to sneak out, which is or in, in, which is attached to the stealthy skill. So we're testing your stealthy skill, but because you don't actually have anything that modifies the stealthy skill, we're just going to use the root of that skill, which is your stat. I mean, it's a it's convoluted. 
but but it doesn't count as using a stat versus a skill if the other person uses exactly uh the elf because the elf is choosing to maintain and the maintain action just draws only upon the speed stat it doesn't draw upon the stat via the skill i guess anyway so this orc in this example rolls three successes but they count double towards the elf because of the stat versus skill penalty the elf gets b6 black six speed plus one die because his stride is greater than the orcs and then also plus three dice from his bow at this range he rolls five successes but the orc because of that penalty wins moves out of range to extreme range for his bow this puts the elf at optimal range for his elven bow rather than shooting the orc chooses to augment his dice by taking up a position on the bridge and using a different table gains another die for his next maneuver and then in the second volley the orc maintains use a maintaining drawing upon speed while the elf flanks drawing upon tactics the orc rolls so so the first so so they okay the orc decided to sneak in the elf decided to maintain then then they choose the actions they get from the roll and then they do the next maneuver that they plan yeah so so okay. first you re- each first each uh party each team in the combat reveals their first action that they want to do or rather their first maneuver i should use the correct terminology they each reveal their first maneuver which is that list of possible things that I, I listed before. Each of those, like each of those maneuvers has an associated stat or skill. Each team tests that stat or skill. Whichever team gets the greater number of successes in that test basically wins the turn and gets to do their actions. And how many... The number of actions they get is determined by... The number of successes they roll. Okay. Didn't... So... The orc rolled three successes, and so he got three actions? It looks like yes. Uh, So, the orc wins... Moves out of range. Then the orc chooses to augment his dice by taking a position on the bridge and using then augmenting his dice is one of his actions. And that gives him plus one. I guess he only chose to take two actions. Actually, hang on. No, no, no. The hang on. Let me let me confirm this. Because I bet uh, in purchasing actions, some cost more than others. Spend one success per member of your team to give that character an opportunity to shoot. Extra successes can be spent on aiming. Extra successes in a maneuver test can be used to draw additional advantage from the terrain. 
A character may only shoot once per volley, but his successes may be spent on other actions like shrugging off a wound, casting a spell, quickly memorizing a map, or prying open a tomb door. A player may take any action that can be accomplished in a short time. Actions are purchased with extra successes from the maneuver. Without the successes, the character just doesn't have enough time to get it done. You get one action per success spent. Each player in the team may only take one additional action per volley. Now, this is an assumption on my part, but I'm starting to think that maybe the first success is just to, like, get that, yeah, do the maneuver, and then additional ones are used to do the other things. Which I guess would make sense. In the second volley, the orc maintains, which is associated with the speed stat, while the elf flanks, which is associated with the tactics uh, skill. The orc rolls speed b5 plus 1 die for his bow, plus 1 die for his position on the bridge, and rolls 4 successes. The elf rolls tactics b2 plus 1 die for his longer stride, and plus 3 die for his bow. He rolls 2 successes, but since it's a skill against a stat again, the orc suffers a double obstacle penalty. The elf counts as having rolled 4 successes, it's a tie. The elf doesn't advance on a tie, because the orc maintained but both characters shoot at the current range using their individual bow skills. At optimal range, the elf's obstacle is at 2. At extreme, the orc's obstacle is at 3. Both obstacles are increased due to the, wooden, the wooded terrain. In this case, both roll poorly and they both miss. So does the attack happen automatically once you guys are in a certain position? I don't think it has to be automatic, but you can take one shot per turn, basically. Without it being an action. Yeah. I, I guess I was just trying to figure out, because the orc did not shoot in the first turn, but then they both shot in the second uh, turn. So I was trying to think, like, what changed there? Um, and I guess it's that they were in range? I, yeah, I guess so. I think. Uh, I admit that. Even I am not entirely sure here, but let's see what happens in the last volley. In the last volley, the orc holds while the elf closes in. That interaction tests perception against speed. The orc rolls his b5 perception plus one die for his bow at this range. He doesn't have the die from his position anymore since he maintained on his last action. He rolls three successes. The elf gathers his speed, which is b6, Plus one die for his longer stride, plus three die for his elf bow at this range. He rolls five successes. He decides to spend one success aiming. Oh, and one success does have to be dedicated to shoot. So he spends, of his five, he spends one success aiming and one shooting. He wins the test and moves from optimal range to too close to shoot. However, the orc scripted a hold, so he also gets a free shot at optimal range. Scripted a hold? Swoon and range and cover. Man, oh man, Tom. You see what I mean? Like, I, I kind of feel like I don't know how much deeper I can even get into this just because everything gets so darn dense. Anyway. Here's something that I am going to bring up that I am thinking of is how there are a certain number of maneuvers in that chart, right? Yes. 
Yeah, let me pull it up here. A certain number of them apply are based on skills, right? Uh, there are ten different maneuvers, and yes, some of them are. Oh wow, okay. And then look at look at this man in the footnotes of that chart. It says, uh, "You're for some of them. Like some of these uh, maneuvers have an asterisk, and that asterisk says." Your opponent always gets a shot at you when you perform this maneuver. And then there's another one that says you always get to shoot when you perform this maneuver. So. Um, the thing that I'm driving at, though, is that this game has a million skills. And what is. So on the one hand, there is a kind of. For a certain type of player. I think there would be an incentive to put points into the skills which apply to this maneuver chart because yeah. it will make them inherently better at this part of the game. But also, with so many skills, as a GM, I guess I would need some real indication of who ha who what NPCs or, or what characters in the story are supposed to have how much of what skill? Because, like, like is it like generally everybody's supposed to have a point in stealthy or something? Or is it, like, only, like, really sneaky people who have even a point in it? Like, are most enemies that players go up against in this scenario going to have, like, low numbers or like lack the skills to give them bonuses or is it does like everybody have these things and if so it's like why do so many people have points in the few skills that apply to combat relative to the millions of skills that have nothing to do well with but keep it. in mind for one thing we are only talking about ranged combat as well like, I think the idea here, and I, I'm not saying they're succeeding or even that it's necessarily like the best way to do it or a good way to do it, but it really seems like the idea here is like super, I, I mean, I, I guess the word is like nerdy, but like super uh, on, a, on a micro level customization of your character. So if you want to build like a Legolas character, yeah, you will want to choose and enhance your skills based on the maneuvers in that chart. But you don't have to build that kind of character. Your guy doesn't necessarily have to be amazing at range and cover combat. Uh, that's really only if you want to make like a real tactical bowman. Uh, but you could just as easily with your GM, you know, be like, my guy doesn't really care too much about uh, using a bow and arrow he so he's just going to take like a basic pot shot with very little experience actually handling them and your gm could just be like okay uh that sounds like you're going to use you know um let me let me pick some some very your crossbow skill right you're going to use your crossbow skill um and it's going to have it's figuring out the numbers on the other side of that that is kind of throwing me for a and there are, and there like, are so many things to take into consider here consideration here too like i haven't even talked about weather terrain and light 
If it's twilight, you get plus one to your obstacle, plus one obstacle to closing withdrawing maneuvers except for sneak. But if it's moonlit darkness, it's plus one obstacle to shoot, but plus two obstacle to closing and withdrawing maneuvers except sneak. Like, this is in-depth to a, a ridiculous degree. Like, even just reading out these range and cover uh, rules has me thinking, like, this isn't just, like, a game system. This is, like, several game systems. Um, I think I've actually mentioned it on uh, the podcast before, but you know the game Urban Assault? Yeah. Yeah. One of the features of Urban Assault, one of the things that I thought was pretty unique, even though the game itself uh, is pretty forgettable, is the fact that you can swap between it being a real-time strategy game where you com- you control all your units kind of like Command and Conquer with like cr- click and drag and selections and all that, but you can hop into any of your units and it becomes like a third-person vehicle game where you can drive that one unit around independently. It almost seems like this game is kind of like that. Like, you can play it just as this narrative-based thing with a very easy-to-understand, back-and-forth, call-and-response uh, system of checks, which is the intense tasks, obstacles, and tests that I talked about. But if you really want to play the burning wheel like a tactical, uh, uh, you know, archery game where when archery combat, archery-based combat starts, or even like missile-based magic combat starts, you want to play it like XCOM where or Warhammer where like the terrain factors in greatly and affects your your roles and it's it becomes sort of like hyper focused on this these details you can do it that way as well that's the impression i'm getting much prefer the former to the latter it sounds like you can play it that way but man if i want to play a skirmish game i'll play exactly but here uh i'll cap this off by reading off this section at the end of the chapter that's range and cover in brief. Let's see how they do breaking this down into some bullet points, all right? First, the GM describes the battlefield and sets objectives. Then, the GM sets starting ranges unless tactics or stealthy are used to set the field of battle or ambush opponents. Then, break down the characters into teams Typically, player characters will be one team. NPC opponents will be on the other. Each team privately chooses three range and cover maneuvers, one in each volley for this exchange. All teams reveal their maneuver for volley one and test appropriate abilities, stat or skill, plus weapon range dice, plus stride or other advantages. Winning team spends extra successes to generate actions. Ties result in both teams shooting simultaneously, but consulting the tying for maneuver section for who gets to move. There's a whole section for ties during these maneuvers. If shooting, check the range for the weapon against the winning team's weapon range. Current range plus cover determines shot obstacle. If the winning team was closing or withdrawing, then they move in or out one range increment according to their weapon. The losing team's range is determined relative to the winner's new range. Then, repeat those steps for volleys two and three. If objectives are incomplete 
or the other team is still standing, choose three new maneuvers and start again. So it really does become like a skirmish tactics game in case of range and cover combat using this particular system. What do you think of all this, Tom? Um, again, I, I think... I think I would rather play the simpler side of the game and then if I wanted to blow up combat in this way, I'd rather just mix it with another system, you know? Well, it's like uh it's like I'd like to do a game where I play Star Trek Attack Wing, but then when we send our away teams down, then we play Stargrave. That'd be fun. But like those are those are different systems that I'm just taking and mishmashing together to get the simulation that i want but um they're two different simulations i mean i could try and wire some sort of connection between them but i don't know this this just seemed like i don't know the the combat system it just seems like there are better ways to do this and those ways are also included in the burning wheel like you can resolve a fist fight, a brawl, or even a duel with a simple versus test. State your intent to kill, to injure, to capture, to shove aside. Any goal that can be accomplished by immediate physical action is appropriate. Uh, describe how you intend to accomplish that goal. Your opponent states an appropriate intent and task of his own. Test your skill with any applicable advantage. The winner earns his intent. The loser does not. In the case of a tie, the defender, if there is one, wins there's no defender opponents are deadlocked and there has to they have to find another way to best each other that is the yeah like that that is the most simple form of martial conflict in the burning wheel and you can just play it like that you can even do it a little more in depth with the bloody versus test that i described where it's that same thing but maybe there are like a little a, a few little advantages like one guy's got a longer weapon so they get an extra die or a shorter weapon when appropriate, or armor, or, you know, things like that. One, one, one character has better reflexes, and they get, like, a little bonus to their test. So, it really does seem like, like, I don't know, the range and cover thing, I, I did not realize that what I was getting into when I described range and cover combat was, in fact, like a, a self-contained tactics game within the system of the Burning Wheel. But it sounds like if you want to just do the most basic version of it, you don't want to muck around with the the granular, uh, like, hyper-focused tactics of ranged combat. Sounds like you can just say, like, okay, I'm going to stab him. Well, I'm going to shoot him. I roll my sword skill. I roll my Bloody coffee. versus sounds fine. What? Bloody versus sounds yeah. fine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, three possible results like for a bloody versus test. Extreme. One side hits, both sides hits, or neither side hits. Apply a wound result per the weapon rules. Describe how you've bested or run off your opponent. This fight is over. Like, yeah. Hell yeah. But then there is, of course, like, there's an even longer section on super in-depth combat. Complete with vying for position, different mo- maneuvers, uh, re- retaining or taking advantage, brawling, boxing, you know, palladium style stuff. Like, it sounds like this affords all these different things. And also, the more I read of this, the the more I understand why so many of the, uh, the play game, like the play videos, videos of people playing it, 
don't even bother with combat or anything. It seems like most people who play this are just using it for like a story system, you know, like a framework that's a bit more in-depth than something like Dungeons & Dragons. Uh, okay. But not me! Alright. Is that it for our episode? Oh yeah, it better be. I feel a bit deflated by that whole burning wheel thing. I almost feel it's like, like uh, I wish I'd stayed in the shallow it's end. It's dizzying, man. But, it's really dizzying. Uh, if uh, you want to check out uh, when we post new episodes, follow us uh, or anything like that, message us. Check us out on Facebook, Comparing Campaign on Facebook. Um, or if you want to see our show notes, see uh, pictures, uh, things I've done drew for this campaign, uh, maybe see a little animation that our buddy Grant did for uh, our Starfaring game. Oh, man, that thing is so cool. Thing we can talk about in a future episode. But uh, if you want to see that, check us out on uh, comparingcampaign.wordpress.com. Uh, who wants to play that crazy burning wheel all skirmish style not me uh burn your character get that ding uh, avoid ranged combat i say i mean i think it's fine just do a bloody versus style just don't do it all complicated leave that for uh somebody who says i'm doing a hardcore combat burning wheel game they can all play by themselves yeah but you know who all you right, know who plays that uh, kind of game though not me. Take care, everybody.